Welcome back to Raising Unicorns. I'm Benton Crane, and in today's episode, I speak with two of our most qualified marketing minds, and we break down why startups shouldn't freak out if your ROI is in the red. We also look at more holistic ways of viewing your business's success over time. Unicorns are real. In the past eight years, Harmon Brothers has helped raise five unicorns. Yes, that's five companies with a billion dollar valuation, with at least six more companies right on the cusp of becoming unicorns. Here on Raising Unicorns, we share the lessons we've learned to help you grow your business by tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars. It's time to start raising a unicorn of your own. Brett, Theron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So good to be with you guys. Likewise. Especially you, Theron. (laughs) Today's conversation, we're going to dive into ROI. Which that term is thrown out all all the time, everywhere. Everyone thinks they they know what it is. And at a basic level, everyone does, right? But there's a lot of nuance to it. And so this is going to be a fun conversation. And I think you guys are kind of uniquely positioned to have a perspective on this that I think our listeners are going to find very valuable. Of course, Brett is our director of marketing. And so he's looking at this from the perspective of brand building, right? Theron is our president of Harmon Brothers Consulting, who is essentially taking our clients and holding their hand through the marketing strategies that are going to help them take the next step to becoming their own unicorn, right? Sure, sure. That's the the goal. That's the aspiration. Yep. Yep, that's right. Let's start off the conversation like this. ROI, return on investment, Everyone thinks they have an idea of what it is and how right. to pursue it and, and that sort of thing. Let's start with you, Theron. When you're looking at a client who's saying, okay, here's where I'm at today and I need to grow to the next stage of my business. Right. How are you going to approach their ROI equation? My partner in the consultancy, Chris Stroud, he calls it the math. You know, he, mm-hmm. he uses that term of an equation and it is very different for every company. Some companies are actually built to be in the red for years. And, and that, that's part of the objective. It's more about the fundraising. It's more about hitting particular revenue marks, grabbing market share. Or there's an understanding that the lifetime value of a client isn't fully understood, but the area of the economy or the area, you know, the, the sector that they're going into is interesting. And there's a lot of ways to extract value once that relationship is built. And so there's a lot of different ways to kind of understand that term of ROI, right? And there's a lot of different ways to think about it. Now, in my experience, early stage companies are almost never, not exclusively never, but almost never ROI positive. It is a very, very rare for a company in its first one to two years to be ROI positive. So aren't ROI positive, can't be really hard on yourself. You have to understand that you have to build a model that shows you becoming ROI positive. And in fact, most people who go into business for themselves or with partners, they even have an opportunity cost, right? They've left something else. Mm -hmm. They've developed some expertise elsewhere. Maybe they can command a six-figure salary and in their startup, they're paying for the privilege to be in it or they are – or they're taking a, a minimal draw of you know, the rent or whatever it is to just try to stay afloat. That's actually really, really common. And so in their own personal financial situation, they're not ROI positive. It's interesting because some of those entrepreneurs might call themselves ROI positive. They might say, hey, I'm putting $100 in and I'm getting $100 coming back out. 
It's, or 150 yeah, back yeah, out, yeah, or, right? Or, or, or whatever it is, but they're not looking holistically and saying, well, I'm not paying myself. So am I really ROI positive? Right, right. The other important thing that I feel like you just brought up, Theron, is that we wouldn't have companies like Amazon or companies like Tesla if every business just had to be ROI positive from day one, right? To build something special oftentimes takes time and it takes some patience. Well, and there's a fascinating thing even in bringing up Amazon because in the world of technology companies or companies that are that are really trying to innovate in their particular field, and so therefore building a lot of tech, doing something very disruptive, many of those companies, particularly if they are funded by outside capital, venture capital, maybe they start with Angel, then they bring in a couple of rounds of venture capital. And if they, they break through the ceiling that many companies don't, they might even start to bring in private equity or, or go, to the go, pub, go to the public markets and those kinds of things. And you'll see companies lose money all the way up. So what's happening? What's happening on the books? Well, one is, is they're giving equity. They're trying to surround themselves with people more intelligent than themselves in order to build a team that can succeed. And when they are awarding that equity, oftentimes that's getting expensed against the books and pushing the books into the red. So that's that's one of the things that's happening. Another thing that's happening is, is they may be racing towards market share and acquisition so fast with the support of the investors. And this is a this is a game, meaning it can fall apart, but with the support of the investors knowing that they can actually loss carry forward once they do start to bring in profits. So you hear all these news stories about like Amazon, you know, being Jeff Bezos paying no taxes. Mm -hmm. well, what's essentially happening is, is that there's giant loss carry forwards associated with these technology companies from their years of going after that breakneck acquisition and growth strategy. And then they're carrying forward those losses against the, as they start to harvest. Profitability is a very interesting piece of the recipe. And it's very different for each type of company and situation. Brett, along those lines, you know, there are prominent people out there, you know, who swear by bootstrapping. And there are other, you know, fantastic entrepreneurs who swear by kind of the traditional model of, of raising capital and the whole thing that Theron just described. If an entrepreneur is looking at those two paths, how should they be thinking about which one is better for them? Oh, man, that's a great question. I think the point that Theron brings up is that the strategy matters, right? When you're looking at ROI, it's not one size fits all for each company. It's not even one size fits all for each stage of a company, right? So when we talk about the life cycle of a business from poop to gold, poop being obscurity and gold being, you know, a household name, like your strategy and the way you look at ROI and the numbers that go into that, that you're considering are going to change over that entire journey. That's right? true. And so I don't know if I can answer that question confidently. I've always been a fan of bootstrapping. I have a good example of company, let's just call them company A and company B, clients of ours who, you know, shifting the conversation just a little bit, but talking about ROAS as an example. And this goes into what Theron's talking about as as far as so ROAS is return on ad spend. There we go. Yeah. Which is a different way to look at return on investment, right? Yeah, it's like return on investment for ad spend, essentially, yeah. right? And that's you know I look at media MROI, buying. yeah, Me media buying versus your revenue coming yeah, out. Yeah, right? or MROI, which you know Harvard Business School uses as like their marketing ROI. And I didn't go to Harvard, but 
you know, it's a cool term. I, well, I respect them for, so, yeah, for, for some, sure. For sure, they can come up with acronyms. <laughs> they can they can say whatever they want. But yeah, so so client A was spending on Facebook, and they were willing to spend back to return on ad spend into essentially what's negative ROI, so a 0.75 ROAS. Okay, so they were losing twenty five cents on every dollar that they put in. Did they have a physical product? This was an information product. Okay, so, 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 the, so, so that, that really just yep. almost a pure margin within the digital because yep. it's a digital product. Yep, so that helps. And but this they, was at large scale too. Large we're, scale, we're, so we're talking, talking six figures, right? Uh, yes, hundreds of thousands month. of dollars per month. Okay, now company B also an information product essentially. I mean, not an information product, but not a physical product. Okay, mm. company B was getting a twelve ROAS. Okay. Now, both of these clients were were putting hundreds of thousands of dollars into Facebook each and every month. One was getting a 0.75, one was getting a 12. But who do you think was the happiest? Crazily enough, it was the it was the company getting a 0.75 ROAS. And one of the reasons for that is because to your point there, and they were looking at the lifetime value of a customer, which for them in a year or two down the road was going to amount to somewhere around a thousand or north of a thousand dollars. Company B, they didn't know yet. They didn't know what the lifetime value of the customer was, but they believed that it was probably going to be about what they spent after they clicked that ad. And that was kind of it for them, right? And so company A, who was getting that really low, essentially a negative ROAS, was happy to pour money into that. If you look solely at your ROAS or solely at your ROI, you're not looking at the entire picture when it comes to marketing. And the issue is that if that's all you're looking at, you're going to run into problems. You're going to make decisions based on numbers that aren't giving you the full story, right? Just so you get the point, okay? If your AOV, your average order value is $100 and it costs you $200 per conversion, you're mm-hmm. essentially losing, you're, you're worried because you're losing 100 bucks on every conversion. But if you have a lifetime value of $1,000, then you will take that $100 loss up front all day, every day of the week, right? As and long get as people you, to finance it for you, right? Well, so that's by what by, by persuading them that, that uh, this business model works. Yes. As long as you can cash flow it, you're going to spend that money all day long. That's if right. you can't cash flow it, you have a perfect opportunity for investment and then you're back up and running, right? And so depending on the way your business works, again, maybe going back to your original question, Benton, is it just depends on what, what your model is at that point. And then you have to be looking at your... Yeah, your return on ad spend, your ROI. You have to be looking at your average order value, your customer lifetime value. So your AOV, your your CAC, your customer acquisition cost, your BRC. Like your BRC is just my initials. That's a fake one. But like you've got to <laughs> you've got to be looking at other metrics than just ROI in a vacuum. As long as you're not just looking at ROI, then ROI can be a helpful metric to keep track of. That example you brought up is actually, I really like that for a couple of reasons. But one is that company that was getting a 12 ROAS, mm-hmm. when the focus is on maximizing ROAS, then you can imagine that every time, you know, there was a, a bad day or a bad week in the mm-hmm. ad buying world and all of a sudden their 12 ROAS became an eight ROAS. Yeah. Or a five. Or and that five. happened. Yeah. yeah it, if you expand to new audiences, it's almost always going to drop, right? That's very common. Yeah. And it scares people. Yeah. Anyone who has any ad buying experience knows that like, it's just part of the process, part yeah. of the game. Right. But if the focus is on maximizing ROAS, then that's super stressful and scary when they see it drop like that. But the other example you used, this company who's willing to spend at a negative ROAS, their focus is very different. Their focus is on saying... We actually want to spend 
as much as we possibly can. What's the famous Dan Kennedy saying about he who can can spend the most to to acquire acquire customers customers wins? That's right. And when you have that mentality, you're actually trying to minimize your ROAS within a constraint. If your Mm -hmm. ROAS gets too high, you're saying, I'm not spending aggressively enough. Yeah, I'm not going after this the way I should. That's right. I actually need to spend higher to bring that ROAS down as long as I'm staying within the constraint of my business model. Yeah, that's a great point. One of the things, though, to note is that ad buying and social ad buying in particular, so so Google your search ads, your branded ads, your social ads, or ads that are on platforms where people spend a lot of time, the pure play model of relying on that type of ad buying to grow is working less and less. I'm seeing very few businesses where that is the primary component of the recipe. It's between the ad blockers, privacy-centric browsers like Brave, DuckDuckGo, search engines, those kinds of things, the changes in behavior around the social network, the population with most of the expendable income, that population, they're spending less time in social media environments, or they're changing their behavior. They're not posting as much. Maybe they're lurking a little bit more. And it's not just at the browser level, right? It's even at the device level, It's right? even at the device level. That the, That's correct. That's correct. Both Google and Apple have changed the way that, you know, information gets served. And, and trackability is more limited, all those exactly. things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, attribution is a mess. Attribution, yeah. trackability, all those things. And so the whole peer play Put in a dollar, see $4 come out, and know where that came from and how to attribute it. That is, that's becoming a more rare animal mm-hmm. <laughs> that a business can actually make that work. Well, and it, I think it goes to the point that ROI is not all you should be looking at, right? So, you know, ROI is also a function of how long does it take, right? Like if you're looking at numbers as far as ROI goes, how far are you going to go back with that? Because you're going to have, again, depending on your business, you're going to have money coming in maybe a year down the road. And if you're only looking at this month's ROI from the money that you're putting in and the money that you're getting out, you're going to see a big fat zero in the ROI column, right? And so- Are you talking ROAS or or ROI? Yeah, well- Or both? Yeah, so both essentially, but especially with ROAS. ROAS is even more narrow, I think, than ROI is, right? Because you're really trying to see that attribution. Usually you're looking at it every single day or your ad buyer is, right? That's correct. And so if you're making decisions just based on that, well, there's so another Jill Avery, who's a lecturer at Harvard, talks about how a marketing spend hits your profit and loss instantly, like that day. But the brand that you're building with that dollar that hits that balance sheet or that profit and loss sheet is building that brand over time and well into the future. And so we try, businesses can't just pour money into brand building day after day and and just be fine with it. They have to see some sort of ROI. But the point is that you have to realize when you're taking a look at ROI that it's not comprehensive, especially with all these uh, with all the changes to the algorithms and privacy that you just talked about there. And we have to figure out ways of getting money out of our marketing efforts while also realizing that there's value that's being built that's unrealized at the moment that you're looking at those numbers. Let's dive into this j- just a little bit deeper. Now, if we rewind to pre-Google AdWords, I don't remember what year AdWords came out, wasn't it? Like oh my goodness. O two or something like that? Or? We weren't even born yet, were we? We're pretty young guys here. <laughs> right. there, there's a few gray hairs in this room. <laughs> well, Google started to become a thing in the mid-90s. So they, they were founded the ad, in 98, and the, I don't remember when AdWords came. It was 
Well, not too I long think after they were even earlier than that, as far as the the technology when it was integrated with like the browsers on college campuses and things. I'm okay. going to say 95, 96. We need, need to go to review the history, but at any rate, let's imagine a world pre Google AdWords. You guys are Googling on the on the fly. What are we learning? October 23rd, 2000 was the day that... That came out. Yep. Okay. So 2000. So Google and had been out for a while. I think Google was 98. I'm going to... We'll stick with you on that. We'll stick with you on that. Google let's it real let's quick. Look it up real okay. quick. Let's Google when did Google come out. When was Google founded? 98. For the oh. corporation. Yeah. Benton nailed it. 1998. Google AdWords opened up a world of attribution that to that point... I don't think advertisers had ever experienced it before. And this world of being able to hyper-target who you're trying to reach and then get this immediate and direct feedback in terms of attribution of knowing who's mm-hmm. clicking, who's buying, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Then you fast forward into the days of YouTube advertising and then Facebook advertising, then Instagram advertising. And we kind of have... Got spoiled a bit. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have a whole generation of marketers who grew up in this world where just hyper-targeting and instant attribution is just the norm. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and letting the algorithms find the customers for you, right? Like that's how, how it's done. Here's what's so fascinating about this. The changes that have happened, let's call it since iOS 14, that have brought on new levels of privacy and lower levels of tracking and making attribution harder and all these things. And, you know, anyone who... Which bring many good benefits, meaning there's uh, the world had swung in that other direction to some level that uh, many people just didn't trust. This is the swinging of a pendulum mm-hmm. where, where the pendulum is swinging back toward privacy and back toward user control. Yeah. And to Theron's point, that's not a bad thing. But so many advertisers see it as the sky falling. Oh my gosh, I've lost my attribution. Oh my gosh, my ROI is terrible. You know, all all of these things. And the marketers who are adapting the quickest and finding the most success in this new environment are oftentimes the marketers who got their foundation pre-Google AdWords, pre this world of, you know, super targeting and super attribution. What are your thoughts on that? Why is that happening? I think that... Traditional marketers understand the different stages. When you say traditional, you're talking about these OGs. Oh, that- so, so, sorry, marketers that predate the ultra-attribution regime, right? Marketers <laughs> that, that predate that or that worked outside of that, they understand that there are different phases of awareness. There's the person that's never heard of the brand, has mm-hmm. no idea what you do. It's their very first encounter. There's the person who maybe has, but has no trust, very little interest, but is maybe starting to have their interest peaked. And then there's the person that's coming into some stage of of a purchasing decision, right? And those types of funnels can be created and had to be created without without, without the super attribution. Those are first principles of marketing. They're first principles of human psychology. And so once you kind of understand that, then you have to think to yourself. And I remember we helped a women's apparel brand that they sent over a deck with the rollout plan for the campaign we were doing, for the video campaign. And we were doing a huge portfolio of assets and there were dozens and everything. And the reliance on Facebook to do any of the work 
for that campaign was something like sub 10%. This was a couple of years ago. That was kind of mind blowing. Like, you know, what are they doing? And yet they had structured 25 to 30 different channels and had carved them based on the strengths of those channels, the purpose within these kind of phases of purchase readiness and awareness. And they had structured all of that and just built this beautiful plan around that. And this was a company that was in the, we'll call it pushing the nine figure range that got a great 20, 25% lift on a campaign. So we're talking tens of millions of dollars of value that they were able to build around our portfolio assets. And yet they didn't look at it like just, oh, just going to turn it over to my ad buyer and we're going to throw yeah. this out on YouTube and Facebook and turn up the, you know, ramp it to the moon. They didn't look at it that way at all. It was a reminder. I'm old enough to go back before these times, but most of my digital marketing, most of my e-commerce marketing was much like these young guys, meaning I learned it more recently. I was in a marketing business when I was clear back in my 20s, but it was a business to business type of a thing, more of a relationship and a building type of a company that, you know, gave away spiffs, that kind of thing. These principles can be replicated even in the digital world, even when there's non-attribution. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need any data. Any data that you can still get, take advantage of it and set KPIs for improvement on that. But it's just very fascinating. Many of the highest growth companies right now are not relying on social ad buying. At least there's still a lot of value there, more than people think once you understand how to approach it. But you just can't approach it the same way you did, you know, two, three years ago. Yeah, two, three years ago, it used to be, you know, hey, upload your ad, set a conversion optimization, set your budget and run it, right? That's right. That's right. And so maybe you had 5% awareness, 5% doing other things, 10%, and then 90% conversion optimization. And it wasn't uncommon to see companies getting three to five return on ad spend quite commonly, meaning that was not an uncommon thing to see that. Now, can companies still get those kind of metrics? Absolutely. Holistically, they can. But can they get it in that same ad architecture? Much harder, much, much more rare. Now, let's give a shout out to your partner and our chief strategic officer over at Harmon Brothers Consulting. Chris Stroud is one of those marketers who he's an OG. Cut his teeth yeah. and, and built his career half of it prior to this kind of world we're in. That's right. He's played a critical role as we have adapted to this new world. That's right. And That's as, right. as we have helped our clients adapt to this new world. Some of our clients were still trying to help, meaning it's new. And this is the, the nut's not cracked for everyone. And so, you know, if we have some of our clients listening to this podcast and you're like, ah, I'm, you know, we're in the trenches on this. This is a recent kind of a thing. And we're not pretending to be the only experts on this. This is something where our practice, much like a, like a medical practice, is developing as we speak. With each passing week, as we try different things and we really are cracking that code for more and more clients. If I understand correctly, Theron, one of the major breakthroughs and findings is kind of a mindset shift for ad buyers where an ad buyer used to be able to look at a Facebook ad campaign and say, oh, conversion optimization, my focus is on getting sales from, I put a dollar in, Facebook's going to serve that ad to the person who's most likely to buy. In the new world, that group of people who Facebook can identify as those most ready to buy has shrunk significantly. And Facebook's trying to rebuild the data. 
so part of what's going on is that all the changes that Apple made and all the privacy, essentially, it was almost like a reset. They've had to... When you say they, you're talking about Facebook. Facebook, Facebook, Instagram. They are working to rebuild the data based on what they do have. I think that that's part of what's going on. And then the fact that user behaviors around those apps are changing is compounding Mm -hmm. the situation because just the usage levels, meaning people have flipped over to TikTok. But there are some really fast growth companies that are using TikTok. Companies are having to broaden their approach. Mm -hmm. As you've helped many of our clients broaden their approach and find new ways to do it in this new environment, new ways to, to succeed, has one of the strategies been to get them to focus on top of funnel ad buying instead of just conversion ad buying? Oh, absolutely. If you understand your value propositions enough, the emotional moments associated with your brand, building top of funnel video content that is quite persuasive, you can look at other factors. So for instance, take Facebook's view through rate, right? Meaning they count a view through at 15 seconds, I think it is. And so you can actually create an audience out of your view through, right? And so you know that people took enough of an interest to get through 15 mm-hmm. seconds of your content and, or maybe it's 75% of your content. And then you create retargeting in and around that. Right. Or maybe you're even relying more on your first party data, meaning you brought them into your website. And now at this point you're finding other ways to, whether it's email nurture or whatever, to get back out and talk to them. If there's a listener out there who's going, man, I'm still just beating my head against this wall. Like my business was turned upside down by these changes that happened with, you know, with iOS and Facebook. Yeah, happened to a lot of direct-to-consumer product companies. What do you recommend for an entrepreneur who's sitting in those shoes right now? I think the biggest thing is understanding and balancing your full marketing engine, the, the full stack of tools that you use. And when you're doing that, As a solo entrepreneur with a really small team, that can become extremely daunting and almost impossible to execute on. Meaning you used to be a single channel marketing Yeah, it's kind of like, hey, I've got my ad buyer and I've got this and I've got one person that does customer service and so on and so forth. And then I manage to post on social once a week or whatever. Yeah. So that person is now hearing you talk about the client who had this massive you know, 25, 30 channel marketing campaign. Yeah, I'm not an $80 million company or $100 million company or whatever, right? I'm, I'm not that size of company. How can I ever afford to do that? And in their particular case, in the, the case of this client, yeah, they were doing what medium to big size companies do and not everybody can do that. But what you can do and, you know, our consultancy, frankly, is great at resourcing both on a kind of an a la carte basis as well as an ongoing basis, the types of contacts, the specialists. Yeah, there we go. Our consultancy, we have a resourcing department that's four people deep and the types of contractors, the types of vendors, the types of specialists that can help you adapt and come in on an a la carte basis and take care of a particular problem and help you do some channel expansion or help you do some testing that you can restructure your marketing mix, we can help with that. I mean, just plugging Harmon Brothers Consulting. But with that said, there are other things you can do. And I think that it really comes down to getting out there and being 
really authentic and talking to your existing customers to bring them more in to what you're trying to build and that relationship that you have. And from that, there's even content that can come from that type of activity, right? I think that the days of kind of the distant or the behind the scenes entrepreneur is becoming less common as well. That's a low cost way for you to get out there and essentially virtually hustle, right? Do lives, find other companies that are of similar size and would benefit from a combined offer or from a combined media appearance, those kinds of things. That type of interconnected marketing approach or that type of interconnectedness between you and other people that are in your ecosystem, whether it's co-opetition or it's, you know, some very complementary product or group that can be really beneficial, I think, too. Kind of circling that back to ROI, I think one of the pitfalls that people often make is they look at social media, particularly organic, which sounds like some of what you're talking about there. It is, but I'm saying do that and then leverage it into very Turn smart that into, paid. Right. Okay. And then how would you recommend they look at, I guess, the results of that stuff that they're doing? So you have a founder who's creating content, running ads behind it. How should they be looking at that from an ROI perspective? Well, ultimately, they have to look at their blended costs and their blended inputs. And again, there aren't a lot of easy, low labor answers right now. We have an economy that's contracting, maybe for some businesses. We have a lot of economic uncertainty. This is a time where I'm saying work smart. I'm saying work with the right relationships. But you still are potentially not going to be ROI positive in the fully opportunity cost Mm -hmm. way. Now, now I will say this. When you decide how to build a business, you need to look at your time horizon and what you want. Because if you're ultimately looking for the exit and you can get focused on what an exit means and how to get to an exit and what buyers are looking for and what a synergistic buyer or company would look like so that you're looking to the right then you may be able to bring in outside investment, run at a loss, build up market share, build up some top line revenue, and get to that exit if that's your goal. If you're trying to build a legacy business for your family or a lifestyle business that's throwing off a lot of income, you're on a different kind of a timeline and you need to be thinking about profitability earlier in the process. It will likely hamper the size that you ultimately become, but you can build a niche business with a strong balance sheet and a strong, you know, kind of profit loss metrics if that's your goal. And we have clients of both types, meaning we have clients that have no desire to exit and get a great big check, but they do want to, you know, pocket a few hundred thousand a year or a, a few million a year as the case may be. We can come to them with aggressive growth strategies, and they typically have both a finance person as well as even marketers internal to them and the ownership itself that will push back and say, okay, let's run some projections. Let's run some assumptions about this model or this particular initiative that we're looking at so we can decide whether or not we want to dip down and invest in our profitability, believing that we'll come out, you know, that much larger and that much more profitable 
on the other side, or our business is in some state of flux or change where we just know we have to do this to get back to a place of profitability. Those are the types of companies where people want to hang on to them. The super fast growth entrepreneurs, the ones that are, you know, trying to grow high double digits year over year or even hundreds of percent year over year, it's a rare breed that is able to do that while being profitable. I've seen a couple of examples of it, but we're talking in hundreds of companies that I've looked at, you know, I'll bet I could count on two hands, the type of companies that are both ultra profitable and they're growing super, super fast. Most of them are either growing super fast and not profitable at all, or they are growing moderately in a happy place and feeling good about their profitability and that it's a great business to be involved in for the long term. I don't know if I answered your question, but I'm trying to get back to this idea of ROI, that that blended, yeah. that blended approach, it just means you do less tests. Sometimes you will work with one particular channel and then you'll lean away from it and you'll see what you kind of right. got there and maybe you'll just maintain it and then you'll move into another channel, but you don't go after two, three channels altogether. Right. Yep. I think that answers it. What it goes back to is, again, looking more holistically and using metrics other than just ROI, figuring out what the strategy of the business is, what channels you can actually go after with what you have. A common pitfall that I've seen is when an entrepreneur is tempted to compare the metrics of channel A to the metrics of channel B yeah. without realizing that cross-channel comparisons are almost oh, always uh, apples to oranges. Yeah, absolutely. Within a channel, yeah, do A-B testing all day long, but don't A-B test across channels because mm -hmm. uh, I, re I remember several years ago, one of our clients was, you know, they were still an inexperienced entrepreneur, but they decided, if my memory serves correctly, they were turning Facebook ads way down and turning Google AdWords way up because their Google AdWords <laughs> had a higher return on ad spend. Right. And they didn't connect the dots, of course, that, you know, Facebook was more top of funnel for them and Google AdWords was harvesting at the bottom of the funnel and they've got to keep the funnel full. So cross-channel comparison can lead to some really short-sighted thinking. There's a lot of really neat new tools out there that help you kind of do multi-attribution data analysis. So you can build custom tools that pull all of that information in. And then there's some really high-end stuff. Yeah. Brett Theron, this conversation has been fantastic, insightful. I know we could go on and on and on. Let's go ahead and summarize a few of the points that, that we've talked about. So when it comes to ROI, oftentimes it's more important to think holistically and to measure holistically than in a vacuum. Oftentimes you have to think about ROI across time. Your time um, horizon, your goals. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. You need to look at your personal goals. So are you looking to build a business? One of the things that I think we didn't touch on quite enough that I think would be helpful is when you are growing a business, the more you bring outside investment into that business, it does narrow your choices, right? You do lose some control. Now, and most that outside the, capital almost always expects growth. Growth yeah. and top line growth, often even more than bottom line growth. Mm -hmm. Now, at the highest end of private equity, they want the profitability because they the they're harvesting at they're that ha point. They're harvesting at that point, and then they're just really improving the business 
and finding ways to bring more profitability out of it. But most early stage entrepreneurs, angel, seed round, VC, VC, you know, series A, series B, most of them are just looking for top line as fast as you can go and without going under, right? And to get as much of your business as they can. You do lose control when that happens to some degree. It narrows the spectrum of your choices. Now, with that said, it actually expands the potential often because once you start to bring on other people into your cap table that are our great partners who bring the types of skills that you don't have and strategic investors, I think this goes without saying, but you... They, uh, they open doors to connections and avenues for an exit that on your own would just be completely inaccessible. That's correct. That's correct. So you kind of have to pick your path, I think is what we're saying. It's that yep. what kind of business do you want? Yeah. In summary, when you're thinking about ROI, make sure that your ROI strategy matches your business goals of, do I want to have a cash cow on my hands? Do I want to have a high growth, seize as much market investing, share? investing, right? Yep. You have stocks or whatever designed for growth, and then you have investments that are designed for income. It's yep. the same thing with a business that you personally own. Is it designed for growth or income? Sometimes you hit the the magic combination and you get both. Brett, Theron, thank you guys for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing your experience and knowledge with our listeners. Thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, Benton, thanks for having us. It's been a lot of fun to talk to both of you guys and appreciate the insights. For many businesses, customer acquisition and ad buying has been a nightmare ever since iOS 14. If you want help navigating the craziness of the e-commerce market, Harmon Brothers is offering a free webinar with three golden metrics you've probably never heard of. These metrics could help turn your company into a money-making machine. Just email us and we'll send you our value-packed video. You can reach us at podcast at harmanbrothers.com. Once again, that's podcast at harmanbrothers.com.